But this morning, we are in First and Second Samuel. A couple of weeks back in chapter 11 is where we left things. David uh, had engaged in that adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Uh, she became pregnant, you will probably remember. And David arranged for her husband's murder on the battlefield in order to cover it up. Well, in the end, the king appeared to the nation to be the caring and compassionate hero who brought Uriah's pregnant widow into his own home. You'll remember Uriah did come home from the battlefield for a few days, so everyone assumed this baby is his. Um, upon the time, though, of his tragic death, David, he marries Bathsheba, and, and everyone kind of hails David as this you know, great, compassionate king. Chapter 11 closed out in that way, and though it was messy, David successfully hid his sin. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 reads, though, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Those were the words with which chapter 11 closed. David may have covered his tracks, uh, others may have been fooled, and they were, but God was grieved by David's sin and deception. So before we move into 2 Samuel chapter 12, let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning, God, we're asking that, Lord, you would cause not only the, the eyes of our understanding, Lord, of our hearts to be opened, but God, that you would give us a, rec a receptivity. Lord, a willingness to bend to your will. God, that those areas of our lives that, Lord, maybe, maybe we're keeping you out of, maybe we're holding on to, keeping control over, that, Father, this morning we would trust you and that we would release it to you. Lord, that we would trust in your forgiveness and mercy, that we would trust in your goodness Lord, in, in your love for us, Lord, your plan, which is infinitely better than our own. We pray, God, that you would do good things here in our midst today, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in looking at 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you have the outline this morning, you know that our message is titled, Your Sin Will Find You Out. And you might remember that phrase from Numbers chapter 32. Israel's time of wandering in the desert had come to an end, and they were about to cross the Jordan and fight for the land promised to them by God. But Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh wanted to stay east of the river. Moses was infuriated thinking that they were trying to get out of the hard work of claiming the territory given them by God, instead settling for what was easier. Well, they insisted that they were committed to helping. They just felt the pasture land that was there was better for their herds and flocks. They were primarily shepherds. And God allowed it. He permitted it. He told Moses it's okay. But Moses hold the, held them, excuse me, to their commitment that they must fight until all their brethren were settled, all the other tribes, uh, all the way out to the Mediterranean and, and north and south. And then after that, Moses told them they could return 
to this place and establish their lives east of the Jordan. But he said to them in Numbers 32, verse 23, but if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Your sin will find you out. Moses was telling them, you won't get away with disobedience here if you shirk your commitment God's instructions and expectation, that sin will expose you and you will suffer the consequences. Sin is still that way in our lives today. It has a way of working its way to the surface. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 2, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever you have spoken in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Time has passed since Uriah's death and Bathsheba's having become pregnant by David. It may have been as much as a year. The child is born now. He's an infant the king has been living with his new bride and, and their baby, still pretending as though nothing's happened. Living a lie, but tortured by their conscience. In fact, David, he writes about that in Psalm 32. Many of you know Psalm 32 and 51 are the two Psalms that David wrote following this season of his life, reflecting on all that he went through leading up to his final confession and repentance. But he writes in verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. David was living under a cloud of condemnation and guilt. Just like when you and I are running from God, ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit, David was miserable, but he's about to be exposed, which is our first point this morning. Verse one, then the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan was a prophet. That is someone who delivered specific messages from God to the people. Sometimes that word was foretelling, that is, it looked to the future, but often it wasn't. It was instead forthtelling, a declaration of the heart of God on, on some matter. It was a message of truth, the word of the Lord, uh, the word of God. We first met Nathan back in chapter 7 when David had the idea to build a temple, a permanent home for the Ark of the Covenant. Nathan had been that voice that loudly encouraged the king and, and told him it was a great idea only to have the Lord that night appear to him asking, hey, Nathan, did I ask for a temple? Why did you tell David to do all that was in his heart, but you didn't bother to ask me? That's my paraphrase, but that's the gist of what the Lord said to Nathan. Well, Nathan, he had to let David know that he wasn't going to be the one to build the temple, but he also delivered to David the message that God would build for him a house, that his family line would produce the Messiah of Israel. God had another message, though, for David 
now to be delivered through Nathan, but this one will be of an entirely different sort. And so Nathan comes to David with that message, but this word from the Lord, it's wrapped in a story. We might look at it almost as a parable, but David doesn't realize that at this point. Verse 1, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup. I thought of those of you that have dogs and cats and you let them give you know kisses on your mouth and things. I know that some of you do that. I don't do that with my animals, but, uh, but it shows the level of intimacy, okay? This, this little lamb, which was not uncommon in that day, was a little household pet and, and the guy would let it drink from his own cup. You can imagine the scene and lay in his bosom and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the story is laid out. The prophet informs the king of this scenario whereby a a rich man, powerful rich man, rather than take from his own vast resources, of which he easily could have done so, he exploited and he stole from the poor man, taking a family pet, a precious member of their household, slaughtering and using it to satisfy his own needs. David had been a shepherd and came from humble means, this story, it would strike a chord with him. He would be deeply moved and we'll find that he was. Though, of course, the story was only a retelling of David's own life. He, in giving in to his lusts, had stolen another man's wife. Rather than being satisfied with his own, he'd violated and disregarded Uriah and his family in the most obscene way. The Lord knew it. Nathan knew it. But David was still living a lie. He was hiding and he was running from God. Well, verse 5, so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. Remember, David, he at this point believes that this actually was something that happened. And, And That wouldn't be unexpected because in that day and time, matters like this would be brought before the king. Some of you, you'll remember you've read in the Old Testament before, matters like this being brought before David's later son, Solomon. Things to be decided by the king. And so David imagines it's simply another one of those scenarios, sort of a Supreme Court ruling. Well, he said to Nathan... As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Have you noticed in your life that when you have unconfessed sin, you tend to be far less merciful with others? Have you noticed that? When things are not right in your own life and you're struggling with the Lord, you then encounter something wrong with someone else and and we tend to be very quick in acting as judge and jury. Especially if it's similar to what you've been covering up. 
often will punish others who are similarly struggling to relieve our own guilt. Someone once said something along the lines of, our sin always looks uglier in someone else's life. And we're far more apt to recognize it and condemn it. King David, he demands not justice, but vengeance. The law commanded in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1, that the theft of livestock uh, along these lines was to be repaid four times over. If someone stole uh, two lambs, eight needed to be replaced. In this case, one, four should be given back. It, however, said nothing about the death penalty, as you might imagine. That was beyond extreme. Oddly enough, though, according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, the punishment for adultery, for which David was guilty, was execution. Do you remember Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees seeking to stone the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? John chapter 8, verse 7, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Humble self-examination is a good idea when we find ourselves being merciless toward others. Might we be overcompensating because of some undealt with guilt in our own lives? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, we read these verses from Jesus. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? This is where David finds himself. But now comes the full revelation of what the prophet had been instructed to reveal to the king. Our second point this morning, judgment. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. That is in the story that he just told. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. You are the man. And so judgment is pronounced against David. The story the prophet had brought before the king was only a retelling of his own sin, and David knew it. That's why there's no interruption of the prophet. That's why there's, there's no scratching 
uh, of David's head, wondering, whatever do you mean? Immediately. the, the, The burden that God by his spirit had been pressing down on David for nearly a year gave way in his heart. David is caught. He'd never gotten away with it anyway. He just hadn't been exposed yet. Nathan then shares God's words directly with David, his blessings and faithfulness that that he'd taken him from the sheepfold. He was just a a lowly shepherd boy that he'd protected his life from Saul, that that he'd poured out... uh, unnumbered blessings on him as king, allowing the the nation to be united under his leadership, giving to him the throne upon which to rule. He'd given David everything, which was why this was all so shocking. Like that uncaring, selfish, wicked, rich man who'd slaughtered uh, and feasted on his neighbor's innocent family pet. David had ruthlessly stolen another man's wife and kept her for himself after having him murdered. He was living a lie. You could hear a pin drop in the palace, a little bit like right now in here. And then came the punishment. Verse 10, we read, The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. I think there was something probably important about the clarity with which the prophet exposed David's sin because we tend, the further we get away from the actual act that we've committed, we tend to justify it, we tend to minimize it. But David needed to be reacquainted with, with the depth and the, and the breadth and the pain and the severity of his crime against God and against Uriah's home. For David's sin, his reign would be plagued by war and death. He who had murdered, he who had stolen, would from himself be stolen. He who had betrayed the trust of a nation will experience betrayal. War will will be endemic to David's life inside his own family as well as on the national scene. The seriousness of what he'd done, failing to be a godly example, murdering a man and destroying his home and taking Bathsheba to himself. It had to be answered with strong discipline. Sadly, some sins like this have consequences that linger well beyond the moment of indulgence. David will be forgiven, as we'll see, but he had a responsibility before God as king, a tremendous calling. There had to be real and painful discipline to help ensure that this would never happen again. David would carry the scars and the pain of this, which would keep him in a place of perpetual humility 
helping to secure his future dependence on God and, and his personal fear of this ever happening again. God, he does this in our lives today as well. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, we read, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. The issue isn't forgiveness. God will forgive you. Without a doubt. But your sin has natural and real results that in some cases simply cannot be undone. Which is why we have to be so careful about the choices that we make to indulge, indulge in the passing pleasures of sin. We might say, well, God certainly could erase the fallout. Why, why doesn't he? Painful as they are, the results of our sin and rebellion are some of the most potent and poignant teachers that we have. If there were no repercussions, there would be far less motivation to actually repent and change. Not to mention that's just not reality. Many of you sitting here this morning could easily number things that have happened to you that you've had to live through and endure because of someone else's sin. Some of those individuals are, are aware of it and mourn it. Some of, it are, some of them, rather, are not. We also, I'm sure, likewise, can think of things that we've done, sins that we've committed, and how it has impacted and affected others. You might look at it in some ways, those, those lingering results of our sin as an insurance policy, that that pain would be for us a living reminder of the cost of sin, that it would motivate us to take it that much more seriously. For David, who'd given the enemies of God cause to blaspheme, who had behaved as one of them, think about it. Oh, you're supposed to be king of the nation of Israel, serving the God of the Hebrews. What a great king you are. Look how holy and righteous you are. David, he was acting just like one of them when he'd been called to something much higher. War again would be a constant companion in his life. He who had murdered Uriah using war would fight battles to the end. It would, it would remind him again of the gravity and darkness of his sin. In verse 11, we read, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity or rebellion against your own against you from your own house. And we're going to see in the coming weeks and the chapters of head all the turmoil that's going to arise in David's own family, stemming from his many wives and this sin with Bathsheba, all of which served to weaken him as a leader, a man and a father. David would regret that decision to indulge his flesh for the rest of his life. How painful those sins are. 
the, the, the effects of which we carry with us, watching them unfold sometimes for decades. But that pain isn't that you and I would live under condemnation, guilt, and shame. That's not the point, and that's not God's goal in it. Instead, once again, that we would forever take our sin seriously. That we would remember not only the cost to us and others personally, but what it cost our Savior. That we would remember Calvary. That we would consider the cost and, and the shed blood of Jesus afresh that we would see that cost and, and remember how dearly our God has paid for our sin, that we wouldn't take it lightly. Though David would fall in other ways in his life, he will never again repeat this error. It's why it's so important that we take seriously the word of God, that, that we resist temptation, that we heed the warnings of the Bible. Have you been disciplined by God? All of us have if you're a child of God. Maybe you're under his discipline right now. Maybe you're wrestling with whether or not to respond to it. Don't despise it. Submit to it. Humble yourself and purpose to learn that the hand of correction, God's hand of correction, it's only an evidence of his love and that you belong to him. That's the good news. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, we read, My son, we could easily put here my daughter, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. It's hard to understand that in the moment. It's difficult to see that in part because the enemy leans into it and, and tries to pervert it in our minds as something other than what it is. But like the prodigal son, God will allow the pressure to increase until we finally come home for our sake. Left alone, the natural consequences of our, our rebellion, it will destroy us and others. But God loves us too much to leave us in that state. So having heard God's word, exposing David, I think of how Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that, that God's word, that it's, it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword cuts into our lives. That's what's happening here with David. He is being exposed. His, his life filleted by the Spirit of God through Nathan. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. I'm sure David knew that in admitting his guilt, the law demanded his death. But God was willing to extend to him mercy. And that's a message for you and I today. God's righteous 
judgment demands death for every one of us for violating his law. The Bible is so clear that there is none good, no, not one. But because of Jesus having stood in our place, he's willing to extend mercy. But he does require that we humble ourselves and that we confess and repent of our sin, as David did. It is as simple and as beautiful as that. David knew he was guilty. He'd wrestled under that weight long enough. He'd longed to be free of it, just like so many running and hiding from God, hating their own sin but ensnared by it, afraid of what will happen when they finally come out into the light. David, he confessed, and the Lord extended to him the mercies that he'd so often written and sung about. He knew the goodness of God's forgiveness And as quickly as he confessed, God forgave him. David, he made no excuses. He he blamed no one. He took full responsibility. He writes about it in Psalm 51, which was inspired again by these very circumstances. 51 verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Now, of course, David had sinned against Uriah. He'd sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against the other soldiers murdered on, murdered on the battlefield. He'd sinned against the nation. He was living a lie. There were all kinds of people he'd sinned against. But David recognized first and foremost, I have offended my God. And he knew that first before God, he had to come clean. He had to humble himself. No excuses, no arguments full agreement with the word of God. Briefly, how do you and I react when we're confronted? Are we able to receive it? Are you ever wrong? Let me, let me say that again with different emphasis. Are you ever wrong? David, to his credit, immediately humbled himself. He didn't fight against it. If it's a little bit of a struggle for you right now to remember back to the last time you humbled yourself and said, yeah, you're right, I'm sorry. David didn't fight against it. This wasn't hours of him taking uh, off, rather hours of him uh, being talked off of the ledge. Uh, The moment the prophet spoke those words, David confessed. And again, it's a little bit of an insight into why Scripture describes this man who has fallen so obviously and publicly, why Scripture would describe him as a man after God's own heart. What did Saul do when he was confronted with his sin? He fought against God to the grave. David He had a a tender heart before. Oh, it took him a while. He wasn't perfect. You're you're like, a tender heart? Took a year. Yeah, I know. Uh, Sometimes it takes us a while too, doesn't it? But But he did. And he fully allowed himself to be exposed. But sadly, more aftermath is coming. There, There are more consequences to David's sin. Verse 14, however... Because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. 
David immediately confesses his guilt, and just as quickly his sin is forgiven by God. But why did this child have to die? For the same reasons that the other disciplines were allowed, war and rebellion inside and outside of the palace. Da David would never forget the cost of the seriousness of what he'd done and that he might not ever repeat it again. It may also be that God wanted to make an example of David as king, lest other Israelites be stumbled by him seemingly getting away with this. It may be that God wanted to prevent the people and even Israel's enemies who were given cause to blaspheme, you'll remember, from seeing him as blessing David's sin. It might also be that God didn't want the next king to come from this scandal. And in addition to that, we simply don't know all the answers to this particular question. What we do know is that sin is costly. What we do know is that our sin hurts other people. I would mention quickly before we go on here, because I, no doubt there could be someone listening to this message wanting to correlate maybe someone's death or something else severe to something they've done in their lives. And the New Testament does talk about God disciplining and, 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 and getting our attention, sometimes in very severe ways, but I would remind us um, that, that not all tragedy is a result of, of our sin, that somehow you didn't have enough faith and that's why this person died or God didn't rescue them. This was something very specific and we need to understand it in the context of this chapter. Now, it's difficult to know, again, exactly why this needed to happen. Uh, it's one of those things that we have to trust in the wisdom of God, which is exactly what David did. What we do know is that when we sin, again, innocent people are hurt, and we need to remember that. Now, Nathan has finished with his part of the story, and David and Bathsheba are left confident in God's forgiveness, but grieving their sin and the fallout that is coming. This brings us to our next point this morning, consequences. That Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, but David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, one week later, it came to pass that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm, implying to himself. David, he's been so distraught and beside himself as the child has declined in health. What's he going to do now that he finds out the child has died? Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, he knew. David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And briefly, before we move on to the next verse, I would just point out, in this day and time and culture, I mean, David's imperfect, right? We've got that. He, he, he's got eight wives. He has other children. It would be easy just to sort of have a callous heart towards this, like, oh, well, okay, moving along. Um, 
that's not the case. He, he was genuinely broken over the ramifications of his sin and that this innocent life was, was being taken for his guilt, that his wife Bathsheba was suffering because of it. It, it just shows us a little bit of the tenderness. Verse 20, so David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. He accepted this tragedy, again, grieving the loss of his child. But he didn't isolate himself from God, which I think is interesting. He humbled himself, and he turned his face toward God. Because we can have the tendency, can't we, when we are being disciplined by God, uh, perhaps walking through the logical fallout from our own sin and bad choices, and, and we can tend to have an attitude, well, I'm not talking to God right now. You know, He's got a lot to answer for. David did not have that kind of arrogance in his heart. He understood he'd been forgiven. He, he knew that God was in control, and he knew that he needed to walk close to his God allowing distance between he and the heart of God. That's what had gotten him into this mess to begin with. Verse 21, his servants were confused. Then his servants said to him, what is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David, he was pleading with God. He was pouring his heart out. He was, he was again, mourning this child. But then he accepts it. He accepts what's happened. David explains uh, essentially an element of pragmatism, but also uh, general acceptance before the, ch the Lord. While the child lived, there, there was an opportunity for God to heal him, to relent in judgment. David knew God was merciful, and so he chose to ask, God, would you please reconsider? He knew the answer, though, was no. What was important now was accepting this reality and drawing near to God. David didn't want to allow bitterness to enter into his heart. He didn't want to allow a presumption that somehow he knew better than God, that somehow God had made a mistake, that somehow God was uncaring. David knew none of that was true. And David wanted to close the gap between he and the Lord as quickly as possible and say to God, I am trusting you. And even in this, you have been merciful. Of course, that didn't mean that he and Bathsheba didn't continue to grieve the loss of their child. They certainly did, but they trusted God in it. David understood, as we read there in verse 23, that he would see this child again in eternity. Though he would never see him again in this life, he would one day in heaven. God's mercy would cover this child. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Now, finally, we'll wrap up this chapter looking at verses 24 through 31, restoration. 
Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. This was some time later. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon, which means peace. Now the Lord loved him. And I would just say, the Lord loved the other child as well. We, we shouldn't wonder about that. It, it simply was a matter of God's judgment against David. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah. And so Solomon lived with these two names, one from David and Bathsheba and one from the Lord himself. Jedidiah meaning loved of the Lord because of the Lord. God went out of his way to make it abundantly clear to David and Bathsheba that they were forgiven and that they were loved by him. It's not as though Solomon bore some mark on his life or Bathsheba had this red letter affixed on her soul. No. God said, once we've dealt with the sin, once we've dealt with the darkness, we'll move forward. But it has to be dealt with first. Bathsheba is here no longer called the wife of Uriah, which is kind of a beautiful thing. Now she's Bathsheba, David's wife. The past is forgiven and forgotten. She's now, again, David's wife, and God sees her as such. And briefly, I would just point out that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 from the New Testament, it, it gives us sort of a, a present-day understanding of what we're seeing in David's life because some, no doubt, you've talked to, maybe you've wrestled with it yourself uh, you find yourself in, in perhaps a marriage today and you're looking backwards saying, oh man, I got divorced, I separated, I messed that up because of my sin. I've got to leave my present wife and go back and make that relationship perfect. And some of you are like, no, I'm never going to do that. But other people have contemplated it, okay? You, you don't do that, okay? First Corinthians 7 says that you should be uh, content, serve the Lord in whatever state you find yourself, married, single, or otherwise, all right? And so David moves forward here in, in this, uh, albeit imperfect, relationship and situation, but nonetheless one in which sin has been forgiven. This speaks powerfully to God's restoration, not only of David, but also Bathsheba. Here we find them again with child, but not just any child, Solomon, who is beloved of the Lord. He's going to be next in line to be king over Israel. David had lots of sons, and yet God chose the son of he and Bathsheba. Isn't that strange? It's okay if you think so. It is a little bit strange, but it's a picture of God's mercy. And we see that throughout the line of the Messiah through, through which Jesus would come. Solomon himself, the offspring of this, what was initially an illicit union. There were many others imperfect that found themselves in that lineage. Gentiles and prostitutes, and now Solomon. That, that the Savior of the world, who would come for imperfect men and women, 
would be born of, of sinners. Not a sinner himself, of course. He was born by the Spirit of God without sin. But the kingly line through which the Messiah would be, would be born is, is established through David and on through Solomon. Now, before we, before we conclude, before we finish, the author takes us back to Rabbah and the battle with the Ammonites. Verse 26, now Joab, remember, he's the commander of Israel's armies, fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. That was the battle that David had stayed home from. It's still been going on. And, and during which he committed adultery with, with Bathsheba, but it's now nearing the end. Verse 27, and Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. They've, they've been cut off. They can't survive long now. Water is going to run out pretty quickly and they're going to have to surrender. Verse 28, now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it shall be called after my name. Joab, he wanted to honor David and reserve this moment of victory for him. God wanted to further restore honor to David and his leadership. And so as painful as the first half of this chapter was and the pronouncement of discipline on David's life, the sweetness of God's forgiveness continues to be poured out over David. As, as he moves forward from that difficult and painful place. The, the joy of his salvation is restored to him, even as God has lifted David's head up. Verse 29, so David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and took it. And I just wonder if the people's confidence in their king was a little greater knowing that he wasn't above the law of God, that he'd submitted to discipline and had been publicly restored. That's important. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones and it was set on David's head and he also brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. So this crown of the king of Ammon was placed on his head. Some speculate it weighed 50 to 75 pounds. So it was a, just a ceremonial act. Then he didn't have to walk around with it all the time, but it was showing his victory over them. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickworks. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. This people whom David had tried a couple of years before at least to establish peaceful relationships with, they wouldn't have it. And it ends with them in servitude to the Israelites. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is painful, but also precious. It's a passage that should make us be very careful about sin, but also confident in God's forgiveness. The church father, Augustine, wrote, David's fall should put those who have not fallen on their guard 
and save from despair those who have. Don't delay repentance and confession of sin. The consequences, the pain will only grow. Whatever secret sin you're allowing to fester in your heart and life, the cost is growing to you and others, to the kingdom of God. Don't believe the enemy's lie that it's too late, that God can't forgive, heal, or restore. He can and he will. He waits like the father of the, of the prodigal son to welcome and celebrate your return. David wrote these words in the wake of his confession, knowing God had heard and was restoring him. Psalm 51, verse 10, and maybe Troy, if you can come up and help us lead us into a time of responding to the Lord following this morning's message. Verse 10, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David knew that God had withdrawn his spirit from Saul. He said, God, don't do that. Don't take your presence and power from my life. I need you. But I know I first have to confess my sin that it might be forgiven. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Renew a right spirit within me. God wants to do that in your life and mine today. He answered David and he answers you and I quickly and confidently in his mercy and grace with forgiveness and restoration. Let's pray. Father, as we sit here this morning, Lord, reflecting on a a sobering passage in your word. God, we recognize that it's, it's reflective of the gospel itself. Lord, the darkness and the depth of depravity and sin, the cost. God, the reality of hell itself. The price that you paid in giving your only son Jesus' blood poured out for our lives. But the, the beauty, the joy of restoration and forgiveness. The hope and the reality of having our citizenship transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, set free made whole. Removing our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Forgetting our transgression. Thank you. Thank you, Father, that though our sin is great, your mercy is greater still. And I pray, God, that you would help us to avail ourselves of that mercy right now. And if there's something that you're wrestling with this morning in line with today's message, sin that you need to confess, 
it may be that you need to go to a person or persons directly impacted by it. It may be something that you simply need to confess before the Lord. It may be something that you need to invite transparency into your life over. You, you need to bring a brother or a sister alongside of you, and I, I would challenge you to do that. But if this morning, for each of us, we all have to confess there's an element to which each of us would say to the question, you are the man, the woman. We, we have to say, I, I have sinned. It's all of us. But I would say, do business with the Lord this morning and receive his forgiveness. First John chapter 1, verse 9 tells us that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive God's forgiveness as you confess and admit your guilt and your shame. You don't have to punish yourself. You don't have to punish others. You don't have to try to earn God's favor because Jesus already was punished in your place. He paid the full price and penalty that you might be cleansed by his shed blood. Before we go into that final song, if you are wrestling with forgiveness, it may be that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. You want to receive forgiveness for the first time. Be made right before God. If that's your desire this morning, I'd like you just to shoot up your hand while we're praying, and I'm going to lead you in a word of prayer. Yes. Anybody else this morning? Yes. Yes. Anyone else in this quiet moment? Father, for these that have acknowledged their need for forgiveness, maybe just a wrestling to believe it or, or, or simply to come clean in one way or another. God, would you pour out your spirit over them that in their humility, God, you would enter that place and minister your grace and your forgiveness as they humble themselves and as they receive what Jesus has done for them. His blood shed, his life poured out. Would you bless them? Would you fill them in a fresh way with your Holy Spirit? Restore to them the joy of their salvation again or maybe for the first time. Lord, that your presence and power would fill their life, that they would know that they belong to you and that God, by your Spirit, by your power, they would walk with and follow you, Jesus, living close to you in your heart. I'm sure that each of us there's some way that God has applied his word to our hearts. And so as we stand, let's do that now. Stand together. I invite and I encourage you to respond to the Lord in worship. Humble yourself before him. Receive his forgiveness and grace. Celebrate his goodness in your life. Let's do that now in Jesus' name.